today's Sound Iron Podcast, we have a very special episode. I recently had the chance to go to Jason Graves' studio and do an in-the-studio tour and interview. You might know Jason from video game scores like Dead Space, Until Dawn, Moss, Tomb Raider, the list goes on. And during the interview, this dude was just dropping gold left and right. And so instead of leaving these gems on the cutting room floor, I thought... Let's make this into a podcast interview. We covered a ton of topics like building out the new studio, communicating and collaborating with directors, networking, entrepreneurship, composing for virtual reality, and more. I think you're really going to enjoy this one. Could you tell us about your work on the virtual reality game Moss? Things like landing the gig and creating the score. Moss is this beautiful VR game. And... It's the kind of thing that really only exists in VR because the the way they made the game is unlike any VR game I've played before. You you literally are sitting in what looks like a diorama and there's this mouse named Quill who during most parts of the game is actually mouse-sized compared to you. So just picture yourself uh, wearing VR goggles and you look down and there's this little tiny mouse village that is literally the size that a mouse village would be if it were really in front of you. So she's this tall and you can move closer, you can look up and see the trees, you can look behind you and see the brook. It's an amazingly immersive VR space and it sounds equally great. The funniest thing about Moss was the audio director for the original Moss four years ago, five years ago, called my agent just sort of looking for general composer submissions. You know, it's a storybook kind of game. It takes place in a forest. It's got all these little animals. Now, I've been with my agent for, back then, I think it was 10 years. So she knew sort of what I love, which part of that is animals, and also what kind of music I would love to write, which is actually very much in line with the music that I wrote for Moss. But it's very contrary to the kind of music that most people associate me with. I think they hear graves and they think, you know, Dead Space or um, Until Dawn. Horror games, which is totally great. I love doing horror games. It's, it's really, really fun. But no one wants to do the same kind of game all the time. And I never really looked to do horror games. So the audio director calls my agent, general submission for Moss. She says, I know exactly who you need. Oh, he'll be happy to do a demo and everything. I don't know if you've heard of him or not. His name's Jason Graves. And Stephen, the audio director, sort of laughed and said, um, I'm sure Jason's an amazing composer, but it's not that kind of game. Right? <laughs> right? That's just, I think... Um, especially with Tomb Raider, tombs and death and darkness, and they picture, you know, someone with, like, black leather and, and uh, piercings and lots of, like, tattoos and angry all the time. I only compose at night, you know, that, that sort of a thing. Fortunately, I was able to do a demo, which was just, like, a five- or six-minute suite based on some of the character designs, but they were showing me, like, a squirrel with a little saddle on it that the mouse would ride and it was just all these animal things and it's not just me my whole family we all love animals and I was showing it to the family I've got two girls showing it to my wife and everyone was just going oh you've got to do this it'd be so amazing did the demo Polyarch loved the demo brought me on board and it was one of the most musically rewarding experiences that first moss that I'd ever had because it was literally the sky's the limit um, what kind of music do you want to write for a, 
of kind of fantasy adventure, mystical, magical thing that takes place in like the forest and old rundown castles. And it was just um, a natural extension of the way they created the game. That perspective I was mentioning where the mouse is so small. I like the idea of Maybe as you're exploring the village, there's a pub, which I think there is a pub in the village, but there's a little mouse band in the pub, and they're playing what? They're probably playing some pub kinds of instruments, you know, maybe like a hecklephone or a clarinet or something, a flute, a uh, little harp, like some little hand drums and a, some kind of tiny guitar. So I thought, well, what can I do that puts music on that kind of a scale? Anyway, it doesn't, it doesn't sound like it's really tiny, but it just sounds small. It sounds not overly heavy, not overly epic, not what a lot of music, especially back then, but even today was being done, that just over the top super production style. So I decided to do lots of small solo instruments, as many as I could possibly play, literally just walking around the studio, uh, Celtic harp, fits in my lap, check. Uh, ukulele, fits in my lap, check. Um, I'm gonna do percussion, whatever is hand percussion, I'm gonna just use that stuff. Some flutes, you know, just lots of really, small instruments. And that's how the score came about, sort of, in terms of instrumentation. And then having those kind of instruments to write with, when you're doing combat music, well, let's go to the big drums, let's go to the big brass and the big chuggy strings. Well, none of that was in the score. So I had to rethink the way combat music would work. And I didn't want it to sound, even if we were using big instruments, I didn't want it to sound like that because it's just not that kind of game. Quill's almost dancing. She's got these amazing moves and she's got this little sword and she does all these jumps. And I like the idea of sort of scoring it like a dance. So a lot of the combat music is almost like a waltz. And it's very sort of bouncy and fun. And even some of it's in a major key. And I don't think I'd ever written any video game music besides like maybe a fantasy thing with like crazy chords that was in a major key, especially for combat music. So that was sort of like a, a feather in my cap um, just for me personally to be able to write combat music in a major key. What would you say the main differences are between composing for video games and composing for virtual reality? When you're writing music for VR, in many ways it's very similar to writing music for a regular video game in the sense that there's about a thousand things that you could tie any aspect of your music to in the game. The only difference is when you get into VR, now you're talking about spatial audio. So it's not just how far back or forward in the sound stage does it sound or left or right. Now we're talking about 360 degrees. And as a result of that, it can also sound like it's going over your head. And a lot of times with game music, regardless of VR or not, regardless of the platform, I sort of feel like less is more for implementation. There were a couple of examples, like in Moss, um, there was a tower that you would be approaching, and as you got closer to the tower, there was some little slightly dissonant flute thing that I had that I gave to Steven specifically for the tower, so as you approach it, it kind of gets louder and sort of unmasks itself and, and billows up a little bit, and then if you pass it or walk away, it gets back down. But a lot of times, Everything else is so interactive. You don't need to, the music kind of calling attention to it. As a matter of fact, it was interesting because, I don't know, a couple of cues into Moss. At the very beginning, we were doing a lot of like, you lost Stinger, you discovered something Stinger, um, this isn't going the way you want Stinger. This is kind of a very like Nintendo-esque way of scoring. 
And the more I got into it, the more I felt like it didn't need to be that heavy handed. Like not even doing that, which any obviously non VR game is going to be able to do something like that. But I talked with Steven and I said, I feel like it should be the music comes in slowly and you're playing the game. And when you finish something, then the music goes out slowly. I mean, you know, 30 seconds for a cue to kind of end because we all had individual stems. Everybody could control it. We were very hands-on with the way things were put into the game, Steven and I, in terms of implementation. And I didn't know if he would go for it because we'd done a demo for E3 and it was the opposite. But he said he was kind of feeling the same way. So that's what we ended up doing. And the music that I delivered is literally the music that's on the soundtrack. I would deliver these suites that were five, six, seven, eight minutes long that sort of did what we wanted to accomplish in the span of you know a 20-minute bit of gameplay. But it was all put together in a musical fashion. And then, like any other game, delivered as stems. So the flute was on its own and my ukulele was on its own. And we could implement it accordingly, but in a very observational kind of background sort of way. You know, the way, of, the way a film would do. We didn't want it to sound like a video game. We wanted it to feel real. Could you tell us about recording live sounds and using remote players during COVID? One of the big things I knew would be important with the first Moss and the second one, which recently was released, having so many small instruments and having such a small kind of ensemble MIDI flutes or pre-recorded guitar strums played off a keyboard just wasn't really going to cut it. And I've found, ever since I built my first studio, which was about 12 years ago now, I've been veering fairly drastically away from using MIDI instruments to approximate real instruments. And even in a, in a current game that I'm working on, the client suggested using an orchestra, but we didn't have the budget or the time for an orchestra where 10 or 15 years ago, which is ironic because orchestra VSTs weren't that great, but 10 or 15 years ago, I would have said, great, let's see what we can do. I'll mess with these VST things. And now I say, well, then let's not use an orchestra. What else can we use besides an orchestra? We can use soloists, which is one of the ways I went with Moss. We can use synthesizers and keyboards making synthesizer and keyboard sounds. We can use guitars. We can use sound design. We can use pianos. Um, I can hire a cello player. I'm much more interested in a live performance than um, trying to make MIDI sound like live. Now, it doesn't mean I don't use MIDI because for Moss as an example, all my flutes, solo violin, solo cello, anything that the live players were going to do, I approximated it all with MIDI. And that was so that the client could hear it and that I could sort of get an idea of what it was going to sound like and be frustrated the entire time because it didn't sound the way I wanted it to. But the first Moss was probably four or five years ago, and I had um, Kristen Nagus, who is a woodwind player in Florida. We're on the same coast, which is amazing. She plays everything woodwind from saxophone to penny whistle to hecklephone to clarinet, bassoon, all the orchestral woodwinds, English horn. Just fantastic. And she records herself at home. So she works out of her house just like I do. Uh, Jeff Ball played violin on the first, uh, first Moss. He's in Seattle, I believe, and also records himself at home. So those were the main two musicians I used on the first one. And then I took it upon myself to figure out how best to play all the other things, accordions and mandolins and ukuleles and percussion. Percussion and guitars and keyboards are sort of where I naturally fall. So it's easy for me to kind of adapt to things like that. 
Um, but it was very essential for the sound. If, if you listen to the soundtrack, I mean, those soloists are up front and, and very much kind of the heart of the score. They're constantly playing all those different melodies. And when time came to do the second one, I wanted to do the same thing, just expand it a little bit. Um, I used a, a Celtic harp that um, was frustratingly out of tune all the time on the first Moss. But I would always try to do just one take. I'd practice a little bit, and then I'd do a, tune it again, and then I'd do a take, and most of the time just leave it alone and try not to edit it or anything. Because um, I like the idea of it feeling like I'm in a studio, and I'm like, okay, take one, let's see how it goes. And it's like, that was great, let's move on. It's just I'm doing it all in my head. <laughs> so the harp was cool. But um, I didn't want to buy a bigger, more expensive harp that would stay in tune. And what I really wanted was a piano. And I thought a piano would sort of bring something extra to the universe of Moss. It had the same properties as a harp in terms of being plucky and sustainy, but also percussive. Um, but I didn't want to use a VST. And this was right in the middle of the pandemic, um, but I spent the good part of probably three weeks with one of my best friends, Alan Atkinson, who also does vocals on both of the Mosses. Um, we went and tried like literally every piano in the Triangle area and narrowed it down to two. And I recorded in those piano stores, I recorded this first piece I'd written for the second Moss. This was maybe two years ago. Just did a single take of the piano and I had my laptop and I had um, digital performer, because that's all I could have on the laptop instead of Cubase, up on the screen, and I just played a single take on both pianos, brought it back home. I thought they both sounded amazing. But when I listened to them, the, the Boston, the Steinway Boston piano was hands down the one that sat the best in the mix. I mean, without any reverb or EQ or anything, it sounded great. And no um, offense to the Yamaha, it sounded amazing as well. But in the mix, the Boston was really incredible. And that's the piano that you hear across the whole score for the second Moss. And the track that I recorded with the one take in the piano store with it raining outside and me wearing a mask <laughs> is the one that's on the album. I just left it because it sounded great. It had a little more room to it because it was this huge piano showroom as opposed to the studio where I recorded everything else here. But that same piano with those same mics, um, that's what I use on everything now. And I never touch it unless I need to affect it for some reason. But roll off a tiny bit of the bottom, put on some reverb, and I'm done. Because I, I found the sound that I wanted with the piano. It's a, it's a really beautiful sound to me. Like tinkly and kind of clear in the highs and not too honky in the mids. And then the lows are very, it's hard to explain. Like they're not, they have bottom. It sounds like it's EQ'd. <laughs> like it's EQ'd in every section and just works really, really well. Do you ever ask your players to improvise or do they usually just play what's on the page? The coolest thing about working with independent musicians who are working at home is you're not on the studio clock. However, different musicians, depending on their instruments, sometimes, um, you know, will always have a different sort of mental background. And in my experience, string players, they're, they're taught to, you know, be in the section and be part of the section and be a conglomerate and they're not going to be as comfortable kind of improvising as say a guitar player would. Uh, Tom Strail, who's an amazing guitarist in Los Angeles, played bazooki and oud 
on the second Moss. And the only thing I ever laid out for him was if I wanted him playing melodies. And a lot of times he'd just double the melody. I'd just give him a MIDI file and he'd double the melody in octaves on like two different bazookies. And then I'd give him a chord chart that I would just write out by hand. And I'd give him an MP3 and I'd give him a click track. And I'd just say, Sometimes some direction, like start it quiet, but a lot of times he's an amazing musician. He's a professional guitarist. It's what he does. He could listen and he'll just sit there and try takes and do some noodling and do some strumming, try different rhythms and send me everything. And inevitably I'll go in and I'll use a little bit of all of it in different places. With Kristen, um, she can improvise and I had her doing some fun penny whistle little improvisational licks, but a lot of times I found it was easier for myself being the control freak that I am just to give her a MIDI file, the same MIDI file I was listening to that played the different whistles. There was combat stuff where the lots of whistles are kind of doing little fugal kind of things and call and answer. Um, sometimes we have up to 12 different woodwind parts playing kind of all at the same time. So it was important to have it all layered and structured and sort of pre-written for her. But at other times, like a current game that I'm working on, other than the melody, I'm kind of treating her the way I would Tom with the guitars. I'm saying, here's the melody, and then just give me a couple of takes of you playing whatever you want. But it depends on the musician. Some musicians don't want to do that at all. They just want to read what's on the page. And it's important to understand what they prefer so you can get the best performance out of them. Everybody wants to have fun, and that's, that's the main thing that I want. I want us all to be paid, and I want us all to have a good time making music. Could you talk to us a little bit about your YouTube channel, specifically making your own contact instrument? When I was in my, my first sort of purpose-built studio in, in downtown Raleigh, and this is back in 2010, 2012, when I did um, Tomb Raider, I think was the first score that came out of that studio. And I had a single microphone preamp that had two channels in it, but I owned one microphone. And I didn't really use it for very much. Um, I recorded some vocals for the first Dead Space that were used in the game a little bit, but other than that, I hadn't really done too much with it. But I remember I was working on Tomb Raider, and I was trying to find a gong swipe. But I wanted it to be a very specific length and sort of with an accent at the end, so it would sort of roll into the next measure and sound a little spooky. And I'm in whatever the usual suspects were in 2010 or 2012, listening to all the gong swipes. And they all sounded great, but none of them did what I wanted. I mean, I probably spent 20 or 30 minutes trying to find this gong swipe. It was a little ridiculous. And I thought, I have a gong packed up. Um, maybe I could just record it. I really had never done any recording on my own other than like the occasional vocal uh, if I was recording, I was at a studio, even a small studio doing drums or like guitars or something. Someone else was helping me with the recordings. I thought, well, you point the microphone at the thing you want to record. So I pointed the microphone at it. I put on some headphones. I listened. I plugged into my little mic preamp and I went and played it back. And even dry with, you know, probably not the best space for recording uh, in terms of placement and all that, it sounded 10,000 times better than any of those gong samples that I had heard. Put a little bit of reverb on it, 
and that was the beginning of my addiction to recording live things. I started buying more microphones, started buying more mic preamps. I was in a beautiful soundproof studio, so there wasn't a concern about, well, the mic's too sensitive and the truck went by or anything like that. Started recording my drums, started recording lots of percussion. That's when I started buying string instruments off of Amazon. I think I bought my bass first, then I got a cello, and then I got a viola and a violin, um, and just experimenting with those. Being a drummer, I can play anything and get a rhythm out of it. I can probably play anything and get a texture out of it too. It might not be the most pleasing texture, but with this whole Tomb Raider Dead Space kind of dark textural slant that my career seemed to be going down, I figured why not indulge it and just have some more fun doing some sounds on my own. Um, my next sort of epiphany was when I was working on um, a game called Evolve and I decided I wanted to do it all kind of through like guitar amps and things to give it an interesting sound. So even if I was playing some cymbals that would just go ding, 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 ding through the guitar amp, it was going <laughs> And I had my pedals set up on the desk, uh, just kind of like I do now, and I had my headphones on and I was going to play the gong actually. And I rolled over to the gong, but the microphone was hot and it was going through this chain of guitar pedals with reverbs and delays and choruses. And instead of just the usual kind of sound, it did all these like and it had like pitch shifters on it and stuff. And I just kind of stopped and listened. I was like, okay, I'm not recording gong right now. I went back to the beginning of the EQ, hit record and just sat there and grabbed the desk and swung my chair back and forth. Like that was the effect that that particular song ended up getting. And I started realizing kind of the, the beauty of found sounds and especially when you're talking about textures and it doesn't need to be pretty. You're not trying to write a beautiful melody with the chair rolling across the ground. You're trying to do something that evokes a certain kind of mood. And from there it just sort of blossomed. All of this kind of started and I didn't realize it back in 2006 when I was first working on the original Dead Space game. And I've gone through this in just painful details on my YouTube channel. Um, but just to be very brief, um, the amount of music we needed and the interactivity that the game required, we, we couldn't record a live orchestra. Just, okay, cue number one, five minutes long and go. It needed to be a MIDI-based score because of the control that we needed. But especially in 2006, there just was a very small amount of effects with orchestra that you could get via MIDI. And I wanted to, I'm the one that wanted to have the orchestra effects. EA basically said, we just want you to write the scariest music we've ever heard. We don't care if it's industrial guitar or if it's ambient something or orchestra. But for me, it was like orchestra. The orchestra needs to be a necromorph. You need to take the orchestra and just completely mess it up. But it's still natural. It's not going through effects processes and distortions and weird kind of signal things. It's just the way they're playing it is what makes it really crazy. And I had to sample it. It was the only way to start. And I had no idea how to do it and had no idea how to plan it. And it was basically just a trial by fire. The smart thing I did was I did three recording sessions instead of just one. So if I completely fell on my face and messed up the first one, I could learn from my, my mistakes and I'd have two more left. That was Dead Space 1 and Dead Space 2. I think I had six sessions total. And I began sampling the orchestra for EA, doing textures and effects and things, but also sampling the orchestra for myself. 
So I'd have an extra day of recording after two days at Skywalker. The third day would be, say, French horns. And I'd just be doing French horn samples. Effects and things like more granular control over the horns than I would for EA. Um, like I sample them in pairs, for example. One, two, three, four, five, six. So if I have them doing effects, they're actually, they're all doing the effect, but I have them times three. So they're playing really differently. It's just that sort of a thing. I didn't need that for Dead Space, but I wanted it for myself. So Tomb Raider, like I mentioned, first score that came out of my studio, and that was the first score that also had 100% my sampled orchestra. Because so I did regular notes and phrases and, you know, kinds of articulations as well, not just effects. And... Um, the interesting thing behind that is originally, I think we had a budget for 45 minutes of music for cinematics for live orchestra for Tomb Raider. And then you know, two hours or whatever it was, um, in-game music that was going to be MIDI-based. And I've only done that once, and it was just like, just like everyone's normal sort of meme reaction to the cinematic versus the in-game, like real in-game footage. I didn't want the music to sound that way. And I said to the audio director, look, call me crazy, but just give me the whole budget for the, the live orchestra budget. Let's add more minutes. So I think we ended up having three and a half hours of music. And I'll use my MIDI orchestra that I've, that I've sampled myself. And I still have people asking, um, so where'd you record that? Or I had horn players. There's a lot of French horn solos in it. And I even recorded like a breath during the horn solos because the whole orchestra is on the stage in theory right um and the horn player is playing by himself it's literally just a horn so i recorded the breaths and i had three or four professors from colleges i'm the professor of blah 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 at eastman school and i just wanted to congratulate you on the tomb raider score and i thought the horn solos were just amazing if you wouldn't mind me telling you who the player was <laughs> i was using a breath controller and it was a like a a midi horn and and i I did the breaths. I literally listened to it with headphones and would go and <laughs> do a little breath in between. But I think it's important to have the MIDI, even if it's MIDI, be as real as possible, if that's what you're trying to do. If you're trying to make it sound like a horn, just kind of go, go all the way. So that's the way I've been with all of my instrumentation. Um, if I'm doing MIDI orchestra for textures or whatever, I'm still thinking, how would the players do it? Um, I just, I kind of picture myself on the stage with the orchestra in front of me and I hear them doing certain things from a certain perspective, certain phrases, the winds need to breathe, the brass can't play all the time. It's a very kind of old school classical way, but those are all the scores that I studied anyway. You know, all that b ballet suites and, and the planets and, um, the Firebird and all those amazing sort of groundbreaking scores back in the day. Like you can't really improve on that in terms of orchestration or melody or anything. So for me, that's, that's always going to be my go-to. Probably the biggest difference between 2006 and, and now in terms of sample technology is just the accessibility. I'm, I'm still blown away how easy it is to record yourself now. I saw an interview uh, with Charlie Puth and he said he used his voice notes app on his phone to record some stuff that went into the final album. It's great because nowadays you can kind of get away with affecting and, and kind of 
transmorgifying anything any way you want, and it's like a crazy telephone kind of EQ on something that's cool, where maybe it would have been a little out there 10 or 20 years ago. But just the fact that you can use your phone or the inexpensive interfaces and microphones that are available now, I mean, $100 and less for an interface, $100 and less for a microphone, I would have been jumping on that, I would like to think, if it were 20 years ago, and really getting on board. Because for me, everyone's got sample libraries. Whether you can afford all of them or not is one thing, but the accessibility is there. I mean, there's even free libraries now, free orchestra libraries that you can get. And I think that's fantastic, because everyone should be able to experience that, use it on their laptop or whatnot. Um, however, then everyone has the same libraries. And from a starting point, educational point, I think that's great. But I think once you're looking at trying to establish yourself as an artist or a composer or a musician, you need to have some kind of a sonic identity. And sampled orchestra, I doubt, is a sonic identity that anybody really wants to be associated with. So I've been really keen on trying to share with as many people as I can how easy and accessible recording, sampling, building your own instrument can be. And that's why I did the video on YouTube with my cheap Amazon cello. And when I recorded that video, I literally had no idea what I was going to do. The whole point was just like, here's something that you can do. And I just used that sound two days ago. I was like, I need something that does like, oh, wait a minute. And I went and I pulled up the sound. It's really, really cool that you could do that with, like, tapping a desk. You could do that with, uh, literally, um, yesterday I was banging on a trash can lid over here, and I ran it through my guitar amp, and that was this cool kind of exploding, like, sort of snare drum that was in the back of this cue. I would much rather spend 15 or 20 minutes getting the guitar uh, amp running with the trash can lid and hitting it a couple times and having my own sort of a sound um, then going through the keyboard of all the presets. For me, it's always been about um, sonic identity and something that's, that's unique that other people don't have, but also that I'm discovering for myself. It's a lot more fun for me to pull out the trash can lid, run it through the guitar amp, plug in the 57, mess with some reverbs than it is to do the... After about three kick drums, I'm like, that one's good enough. I, I don't have patience to do something like that. But if I'm miking my kick drum on the actual drum set, I'll spend an hour doing that because it's getting up and moving around and not sitting at the keyboard staring at the computer screen all the time. What would you say your process is for experiencing the games? Do you play the games? Do you watch footage? Do you watch other people play? How do you become immersed enough to compose music for it? I think everybody's got their own method of working. I've got some friends that constantly play whatever game they're working on. Just constantly playing and checking in to Wise or whatever third-party app is used for implementing the music, checking it in and then getting it back live, updating it and then playing it. And I think that that's a fantastic way to work. It's just not the way that I work. I know other friends that just want to see some artwork and have a general description and then absorb all that and be in the studio by themselves and kind of do their own thing. That's also not the way I work. I'm kind of somewhere in the middle. I don't play the games live as I'm working on them. A lot of times, if schedule allows, 
at the beginning of a game, I'll go and see the developer, probably for a couple of days. And even then I won't play the game because I'm terrible at video games. I was the kid in middle school who would sit there and watch his best friend play like 1941 on a, I almost said console, on an arcade for 35 minutes on a single quarter. And then he'd get towards the end and he'd die. And I put in my quarter and I'd be good for like 30 seconds. I just never, I think I always enjoyed watching my friends play more because they were so much better than I was. And that just transcended upwards as an adult. And especially if I'm thinking about the music, if I'm thinking about the implementation and I'm looking at the map of where we are on this level, it's a lot easier for me to have the audio director or, or someone else playing through the game and explaining things than me trying to play and think and shoot and coordinate and think about the music. So even once I'm home, uh, I'll just get gameplay footage. Usually it's a, I mean, 15 to 30 minute long video, however long the level would be when sort of the developer does the speed run through it because they've played it a thousand times. But a lot of times that's so much better because I can have it as a movie, either on a side screen or even put it up on the, the big TV if I'm sort of getting it to the end of the queue and just have it on loop and either turn the sound down or turn it up because we'll get gameplay without any music. Sound effects are playing, but there's no music. So I can put the music in there and really you know, line it up with a thing or if I am scoring a cinematic, have the movie in Cubase. So it's literally like scoring a movie. For me, it's a lot easier to think about the music that way. I'm sort of divorced from it. And then the enjoyment of playing it comes when the game's released, I'll play it with my family. Or should I say, I'll watch my family play it and I'll sit with them and we'll have a blast. It's kind of the best of both worlds for me. Could you talk a bit about your career journey after leaving California? So I went to school at uh, University of Southern California for film and TV music at the time. They didn't even have game music, wasn't really a thing. But I got out of school and I worked for a while. I was working underneath another composer, um, co-composing a lot of... Um, like commercials and films and stuff like that. But it wasn't really doing it for me. Um, just the attitude of everybody I was working with was kind of not that great. And I wasn't enjoying writing music anymore. And I was working really, really, really hard. Not afraid to work hard. I've worked hard my whole life. But I felt like I, something needed to change because I needed to have more fun doing this thing that I have loved doing up until I got out of school and now it's become a burden and why is that? So I had the chance, being from North Carolina, I had the chance to um, come back home and work on an independent film that was being shot and produced in Wilmington, which is just kind of two hours away from where I was living. And back then, Wilmington was a super popular up and coming film thing. And I took the plunge, moved from LA, moved back, not to Wilmington, but to Raleigh and worked on a couple of indie films. Um, but that's not exactly gonna pay the bills. So the first thing I did when I got home from my big trip to Los Angeles, having graduated and worked on these big films and everything, was I worked at the coffee shop that I was working in before I left for school. And I did that for about a year, lived at my in-laws house with my wife, because that was the reality of film scoring, independent film scoring gig just wasn't gonna pay the bills. 
Then I switched to working to um, like this bagel delivery thing because I was working with a production company running Pro Tools for them, just recording voiceovers and stuff like that. I could do bagels in the morning from like 4 a.m. until 8 a.m., serving them at like offices and things in my own car. Then I could go to this production place, even though they weren't paying me anything, but I could learn Pro Tools. So I did that for two or three years, um, started writing library music and stuff like that, and eventually went out on my own and did my own production company for two or three years. Had, I mean, we had a camera, we had like a Media 100 video thing, all the fancy stuff that the late 90s kids would have to shoot video. Um, I did work for the state, I did work for politicians, did work for, uh, recorded the world's first surround sound handbell DVD. Thank you very much. Recorded and mixed that myself in 1999 or something like that. What I was doing was making money and supporting my family. What I wasn't doing was writing that much music. It was like 10% of my gig. I was doing a lot of business stuff. I was doing a lot of recording. I even recorded some bands in the studio. I say studio, but it was just you know, a 16-channel digital thing, and I had like five microphones. But I'd record bands, like we'd stack, okay, do the guitar, do the drums, now do the guitar, now do the bass, just in this one little like eight by eight booth. Eventually, that imploded because the whole local market just went kaput. Everyone that I knew that were sort of bigger companies doing the same thing I was doing on a much bigger scale were all closing down. It was just what happened with technology and everything else. So I sort of turned back to trying to do composing more often. And that's when I started networking around town, met another couple of composers doing the same sort of thing, and then just happened to fall into video games. And this was 25 years ago. It was probably uh, eight years after I got out of school. I did all this other stuff that had nothing to do with writing music. I mean, listening to a politician trying to read their, my name is Jason, and I support the, and, and kind of coaching them and figuring out how to get the mic placement the right way. And I remember a client commenting on, how do you know exactly which word to go to when I say the part where I'm like, well, it's the, I can see the waveform. I know what the waveform... But see, all of that, all of that was just building knowledge and building a foundation. So when it comes time to mic that gong or edit that vocal performance or edit my percussion thing or do whatever, I, I had already had like eight years of doing everything but music. And... During those eight years, I was, I was pretty much like, if this is going to be my job, I'm doing musical things. I'm doing some composition every now and then. I'm doing lots of mixing and mastering, and, and I'm working with people, and I'm supporting my family. And if this is what I end up doing, then, then this is great. But when I fell into games, and literally it was just somebody who knew someone who had a studio that was making a game in like Australia that was based on a film that was called King Arthur back in 2004, I think, or something like that. Um, and they said, Jason, didn't you used to be in Los Angeles? Didn't you write orchestra music in Los Angeles? I was like, oh yeah, I mean like eight, eight years ago or something like that. Sure, sure I did. I've got a guy that they need music for their video game. I was like, video game? Orchestral music? Okay, cool. I had my little I don't remember, 512 megabyte EMU sampler with all my little custom orchestra sounds all worked out. I was ready to go. Um, and I went from doing the Sony logo or the Intel logo or the Honda logo a thousand times to writing 20 minutes of music in a couple of weeks and sending it off to the developer in Australia every day. And the only response is, this is amazing. When are you going to send more? And it was sort of like, 
That first game is when the clouds parted and the choir sang and the rainbows came down from heaven. And I was like, this is what I want to do. And once, obviously, that's writing music and people are enjoying what you're writing and you're not having to do a thousand different corrections. But it was just the, the camaraderie of games um, really, really satisfied me from an emotional standpoint. And that was in 2002. I even did planetarium shows. I scored planetarium stuff here in town. And I did some local games and things before that, but that was my first like really sort of international project. And that kind of orchestra music, that sort of a scale, I think it was a whopping 40 minutes of music or something, but it really was, I planted my flag firmly in the world of video games after that and just started going after them hard. Any convention I could go to, any other composers I could meet, anything. And it doesn't mean that I still do commercials, still do trailers, still do films, did multiple seasons of TV a couple years ago. It's all good and it's all gravy, but it's always like when I come back to games, it's sort of like, ah, this is why I love being here so much. It's the people, they're just amazing. Could you talk about your networking in the early days? After that, first game 20-something years ago, the industry was a lot different back then, only in the sense that it was really a lot smaller in terms of games, uh, the number of companies and the number of composers. But there was still uh, all the same conventions that are going on now were going on back then. So every chance I got, I'd go to a convention, I would meet every other composer I could possibly get my hands on. And um, to me, that was just networking. And I've never been the go shove my hand to a developer and be like, hey, I'm Jason, I can write the best music for you in the world. So I, just, I, just don't, I just don't feel comfortable doing that. I would rather, hey, my name is Jason. Man, what's with the drum set on your shirt? Like, I'm a drummer, are you? Like, strike up a natural conversation? But even then, if it's someone I don't know, I can talk, but I'm much more comfortable talking with friends. I think we all are. So all my composer friends are the ones that I met back then. And for me, that was networking. And networking is better than not working. That's what I've always said. I'd rather network with all my composers. Even if we all complain about clients or deadlines or technology not working, or it's just, um, there's a bond there. And inevitably, uh, it'll end up being something that you or one of your friends, who's a composer, will need something. And we call each other and either recommend a musician all my musicians I know have been recommendations from composer friends. All the ones that played on Moss, I didn't know who they were. If I did, it's because I met them at a conference, but I didn't think specifically to hire them until one of my friends mentioned it. Or we'll call each other and literally get a dude that I know is an amazing guitar player. He'll play guitar for me. Someone else that's a violin player. I'll do percussion stuff for him. It's just, it's like a family. And to me, the reason I'm going on about it is that's how I like to think of all my relationships with audio directors or, or producers or uh, creative executives with games. So we all know each other personally, and it's those conferences that allow you to have that FaceTime. And people get to know you if you're on a panel or giving a talk or something. You get to know other people if they're doing the same thing, and then you socialize. And that was really, it was just the grassroots, like building it from the ground up, sort of conferences, writing as much music as I possibly could. I don't mean working. I mean writing as much music as I could. Even at the time before that first video game, I think I'd done, I mean, hundreds of bad songs. 
But every single one that I did, even if I couldn't hire a saxophone player and I was using a sample CD of just pre-recorded sax phrases, I was writing a, a reggae tune because I hadn't written a reggae tune before. Oh, how do chord progressions work in a reggae? Oh, it's like a backwards sort of thing with the drums and do this and the chords are actually pretty simple and how the saxophone gets EQ, just all this sort of um, just tips and tricks of writing music from a production standpoint that I had learned. Um, any style I could get my hands on, especially orchestra music, I would digest you know, any John Williams score I could get from those study scores, take the whole thing apart, and then write a piece of music like based on the, the harmony from Princess Leia's theme or whatever. I wanted to have that same sort of emotional reaction Lots of music writing, lots of networking, not necessarily lots of jobs, but the jobs came slowly but surely. And for a while, um, I was just pitching for things. I had an agent based on this first game that I got, and he would get a call and someone would say, Ubisoft would say, we have a World War II airplane game, and we need music that sort of sounds like Raiders of the Lost Ark. And so people would just send examples in, and a lot of times I'd get the job based on the examples. And then, then they'd call and say, we're doing a World War II submarine game. We need music that blah, blah, blah. Well, I'd work on that. Oh, we're doing a World War II blah, blah, blah. I did all these World War II like historical army, air force combat sort of things. And then it was Star Trek for a while. And that was purely based on the pitch that I wrote, you know, the theme that I wrote for the pitch. A lot of times, even if they don't ask for it, I'll write some music and I'll try to engage with the audio director or, or the developer. Even if it's a super detailed list of things, I wanna get on the phone with you and I wanna to talk to you and involve you as much as we can. It's not like a, here's what I did and throw it over the fence and hope you like it. Because that's just in a vacuum. That's, there's a thousand different things that you could do with this two minute piece of music, even if they're not asking for it, that you're going to submit. So at least, Keep them involved. I mean, it would literally be, here's my idea for a melody. It's just on the piano, but what do you think? By the way, I don't want to bug you too much. No one ever said, yeah, you're, you're fine. Send us the final version. They're always like, no, 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 no. Keep, keep sending us examples. And most of the time it was positive, but occasionally there'd be a, that kind of reminds us a little bit of the, okay, no problem, ditch it. So not only am I getting the developer kind of engaged in a conversation about the music, that I haven't even been hired for yet, that I'm sending them for the demo, but they're also getting an idea of what it would be like to work with me, which is very much a, is this what you need? Do I need to change something? Um, very team-oriented, very community-oriented um, kind of vibe. So inevitably, that always builds up to whatever I end up sending them. is gonna be a little different maybe from what I would have done on my own, but we came up with it together. So it's like the audio director's kind of already invested because he's the one that suggested like the fuzz bass to go in there. And I'm like, that's so cool. Yeah, I've got, should I get the five string Fender out? And, you know, we geek out about basses and fuzz tones and things like that. Um, and it's like, I want to work with, hopefully, I want to work with this guy. Like he's hopefully fun to be around and seems excited and energetic. And that was my basis for 25 years of just game after game after game, occasional commercial, then a game, maybe some movie trailers, game, 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 and just kind of working up, working up the ladder and not really, uh, I don't think ever really stopping and going, yeah, I've arrived. I'm, I'm the man. I don't really, I mean, you could probably talk to, and I'm not comparing myself to these people, 
John Williams or Hans Zimmer or anybody at the top of their game in films, <laughs> no pun intended, they're just, from what I've read, they're just trying new things. They're just trying to learn new things. They're trying to find new relationships. And they're never one to sit on their laurels and be like, yep, I'm good. Yeah, you know, I don't, I don't need to learn anything else. I think it's sort of built into our spirit as, as composers and, and musicians. So as a result, it's both eternally satisfying to be able to sit like in this space and talk about all these things, but it's also, you know, a little frustrating because you never really feel like you've done the best you can. And when something's finished, um, like that first Moss, I haven't really gone back to listen to it. Because I know if I do, it would be like, oh, yeah, I should have done that. Oh, with the thing and the, oh, that's right. I didn't do it. Um, I like looking forward. And I like learning new things. Um, that's the biggest proponent that's kept me moving for the last 20-something years in games. How was the process of building out the new studio? So I was in Raleigh for 12 years, and we had this kind of old, decrepit greenhouse that was in the backyard when we first moved, and we knew that it needed to be torn down, but we never really knew what we were going to do with it. And my wife actually had the idea of building a studio back there, which at the time seemed like, yeah, that would be, that would be amazing, sure, someday. But about six years later, we, we got it built. It took three years, uh, and I was in there for about five years, and then we decided, of course, that it was time to move. We were in downtown Raleigh, and it had grown up around us, and it was becoming, like, super popular and super trendy in a good way, like lots of younger people moving in, and we'd sort of had enough with downtown. We wanted to be in the country. We wanted to be sort of away from all of that, and the property we ended up finding about six years ago is about an hour outside of Raleigh, but of course, you couldn't just pick up that studio and take it with you. It was <laughs> definitely built in as a separate building in the backyard. So for four years, I worked out of a little tiny spare bedroom here in the house where we are now and dreamt of one day being able to build something that was maybe just a tiny version of what I had in Raleigh. I kind of felt like, well, that was the ultimate, even though it was a little too small, but I'm not going to be able to do anything like that again. Even just the team that built it had a waiting list that was three years long. So even if I was like, hey, guys, I have all kinds of money and I have the exact space where it's going to go. Let's go. They'll be like, see you in three years. So ironically, this whole thing with the pandemic went down. Airline travel started closing down. I was kind of at a place where I was going to be repurposing the room I was in, maybe knocking down a single wall and putting some panels up. Well, my studio buddies that built my first one all of a sudden had an opening in their schedule because they couldn't fly to work on the studios they were supposed to work on. And they're here. They're only about 45 minutes away, which is why they built my first one. But they also build studios all over the world, like world-class studios. And as it turns out, I went and saw them, and they were ready to get rolling. So I went from going to buy some panels myself and put up on the walls, which is totally fine. I think a lot of people can relate to that, to being able to talk about designing and building an even bigger, even better sounding version of what I had in Raleigh. And all of that took uh, probably about two years. You know, we had a shortage on wood for a while, and then the lumber prices were sky high, and then it was drywall. But in the end, I ended up gutting what was essentially four rooms a full-size bathroom uh, and a like shower thing, taking all those walls out, building the studio and having a machine room. 
and I moved in last September, and it's just been a dream come true. So what kind of construction are we talking here? So before I went down the rabbit hole of having uh, Tony Brett is his name, uh, Brett Acoustics is the company that built the studio. Before I went down that rabbit hole, I literally had an acoustics company that was going to be making just some very tall panels for me that I was going to put on the wall to cover as much of the wall as I could. And then they also make clouds. And I was going to put a couple of clouds right here over my desk. And I already had this desk. It's the only surviving piece from the original studio. It had been in storage outside for five years. So I was going to unearth the desk, throw up some panels, and be done with it. Once I knew Tony had time, it sort of became its own beast. Because he has all kinds of ideas. And I've worked with him before. And... Literally, uh, I would just say, he would ask me a question, and I'd say, what would you do if it was your studio? And he'd go, um, no one's ever asked me that before. Because um, usually people are like, I want to have it, and it needs to be a... I just wanted them, again, just like working with the developers, I wanted them to have fun, and I knew if he was enjoying himself, he was going to do whatever he thought would be the best. So the only downside to everything is because of acoustics, we had to pull the front and back walls in by about six to seven feet on each side. So the empty version of the studio before construction was significantly larger. However, that's all bass trapping. And the acoustics in here are really, really great. Um, other than that, I let Tony do whatever he wanted to do. I wanted lots of lights. And I knew I wanted the AC to be quiet, as most professionally built studios have. And then everything else, honestly, was talking with Tom Canova, uh, Canova Audio. He does his own awesome music and client work, but he also does cabling for all the studios that Tony builds. So they're sort of the Abbott and Costello of the studio world, and I mean that in the most loving way possible. Tom is like, when he wired my first studio, he said, why don't we put a little panel in the wall over here? I said, what would you want a panel for? Well, put, you, you could put your microphones in there. I only have one microphone. He's like, why don't we put four? Let's put four patch points so you could have up to, it's like, I would never, trust me. I'm like, okay. And let's put a couple of things for guitars, like an instrument pass-through and an amp pass-through. It's like, I don't really, sure, whatever. Fast forward some number of times, uh, I think three different times. Hey, Tom, um, I need more of everything. So he came out to that studio four different times. We went from four tie lines to something like 40 tie lines. I just kept expanding because I kept buying more microphones. I kept recording more instruments. I kept buying more instruments. I kept needing more space. So when I wanted to start this, he came over first thing. And a lot of it was like, okay, we're going to do like 70-something tie lines in here so that we will literally never run out. So I've got like four panels in the studio where there's something like... 12 or 18 like microphone connections another set where there's xlr or um, trs combo jacks like for keyboards or keyboard amps or something like that every single corner has got microphone connections and everything's wired through the patch bay and that's more of a big studio thing and sometimes it can be a bit of a pain but the bottom line is um it does make it really easy if i want to do something like yesterday i got out the analog heat and I wanted to patch it in old school with the audio ins and outs. And all I had to do was just plug it into right here where there's a little patch point because I knew I had four points for ins and outs available and then patch that into the converters and I was done. That sort of construction forward thinking is what made me really, really happy because I have 
more than I've ever had ever plugged in, and I'm using multiple things every day, and then the next day it's a completely different set of instruments, but I'm only at maybe 50% capacity on all my, my patch points. In-wall wiring has made all the difference in the world, but I also have a stage box from my old studio over here under the desk, which are the microphones on the desk, are plugged into the stage box. And that, to me, is a perfect solution to someone who can't trip, rip walls out and put mic tie lines in the walls. You can get a stage box with 4, 8, 16 inputs. That's how I have my drums mic'd up in this old space when it was bedrooms. I cut a hole with a <laughs> saw by hand this big, put a PVC pipe between the two rooms, ran the stage box into the other room, plugged all the mics into the stage box, and then ran the single cable all around the border, all the way through the other room, and then into the bathroom that I was using as a machine room at the time with the portable AC unit. So it can be done. It's just a matter of uh, you know thinking about it beforehand. <laughs> Could you tell us about any opportunities you've had to use SoundIron products in your music? It's funny because this, this one instrument called Circle Bells comes to mind. And I remember when it first came out, I bought it and I was using it all over the place. I think I was doing some um, fantasy uh, Heroes of Might and Magic, this Ubisoft fantasy game. And just the little pling, 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 kind of crystally sort of just pureness of the bells really really worked and I used it in a bunch of other things but then like anything else some time went by I'd used it didn't want to use it that much and then I worked on this game called um, Little Hope for Supermassive which is part of the Dark Pictures anthology and I needed like church bells well I wanted church bells but I didn't want them to sound like church bells I wanted them to be scarier than church bells and what I ended up doing was taking the circle bells and I don't know if it was like this in contact or if I just extended the range but playing them down low like really low like multiple octaves down with a really long reverb you get sort of this like like almost bell gong sort of thing. And that actually ended up being a big part of the, the ambient experience in Little Hope was that sort of bell sound. It's like if I didn't have some form of that in a stem for a cue that I would send, uh, the developer would be like, can we get one of those cool like bell from hell stems too? I'm like, absolutely. Let's pull it back up and, and there we go. <laughs> What's a recent personal project you've enjoyed? One of the great things about uh, working in games specifically is all of the clients I work with are all over the world. I mean, no one cares where their composer is because they're probably outsourcing other people in their departments all over the world as well. So music is just another outsourced asset. However, I have been able to do some work with folks here in North Carolina, and one of them is a company called Mighty Rabbit Games, and we did a couple of games in collaboration with some other local studios, um, like there's a soundtrack for Fat Chicken, which was this hysterical game I got to work on. That's available like everywhere. And it was um, crazy like country instruments, but sort of amalgamated and mutated to sound a little weird and a little quirky. And that company, Mighty Rabbit Games, went on to form the company known as Limited Run. Um, that's Josh Fairhurst and uh, Douglas are the two main owners for the company. So I've known these guys for at least 10 years now. And we've probably worked on four or five games together. And Josh called me and said he was planning on opening a store, like a physical brick and mortar store for Limited Run here in North Carolina in Cary. And wanted to know if I'd be interested in doing a soundtrack for the store 
which I thought was so interesting. I've never heard anything like that before. And I was immediately like, of course, yes, absolutely. But what do you want the what do you want the music to sound like? And he said, I ah, just make it sound like you're shopping in the mall in the 90s. And that's all we need. And I didn't really know how shopping in the mall in the 90s, the store was going to look. But oh my gosh, I went to the grand opening and um, it looks like blockbuster video like on crack in the 80s and 90s with like colors the carpet is like stripes and everything it's so nostalgic and i got to do i think it was 10 or 11 songs that are i mean 8 10 12 minutes long throwing back to the 80s and 90s and i mean the first thing i did was get out whatever old synths i have that are from the 80s i got out my old drum machine that was from the early 90s i've got some other synths back there that we accidentally discovered also from the 90s tried to use as many synths as I could, and then also got all my friends to play on it. So I've got like live piano, um, live guitar, live saxophone, um, multiple live saxophones, even a soprano sax. We did like a Kenny G sort of uh, thing. Um, yeah, it was, it was so much fun. And the only directive from Josh was just like nostalgia. I'd send him a new tune. Hey, what do you think about that? And he's like, it's great. Sort of like that first video game company that uh, I was sending to for King Arthur. It's great. When can we have more? And it was such a great experience because it was pop music, more or less. And I'd never really done like, instrumental pop music before. And there's a big difference in doing pop. It's like bass guitar is too DB too hot. And you can tell because it's so exposed and on its own. It's not like a score where there's kind of a lot going on. So it was really fun to work on. And... Um, even more fun to go and shop and hear the music playing because it's the only music that they play. I've got like uh, 10, I think it's a 10 or 12 hour playlist, believe it or not, of like all these songs and then sort of mishmashed like versions of all the songs. So it'll just like kind of play and play and play and they have it programmed to randomly shuffle. So you never hear the same song in a row, never hear the same song twice, won't even hear the same song from one day to the next. But I do think it's cool because they sell video game music. Like they literally are a label. They have two or three of my soundtracks on their label. They could easily play their soundtracks. And I said, maybe you should occasionally play. He's like, nope, this is the sound of the store. This is it. This is all we're going to play. If we could have piped the music in outside when people were waiting to come in, we would have done that. But there was an ordinance where we couldn't put speakers outside. I'm like, all right, okay. Great, and I'm, I'm tickled. The, the album's out everywhere, and it was just so much fun to work on. Could you tell us about your zoo of over 20 pets and talk a little bit about work-life balance? There's just something about animals. Um, I mean, <laughs> I, can't, I can't get away from them. I think that's the main reason I was so attracted to, to Moss, because it was this little mouse and all the animals that she interacted with. I've just been an animal lover forever. Like I've always loved turtles and tortoises. I think my mom said that turtle was my first word when I was, you know, however old you are when you talk, like 18 months. Um, and we've had dogs and cats and some birds and things in the past. And, you know, animals come and go because some of them, like the tortoise, is going to outlive me. Others, uh, like we had some rats for pets that are the smartest creatures in the world, but their life spans three to five years. So it's a little bit of a give and take with animals, but what I do love is it's literally the exact opposite of, of all of this. A lot of the animals we have are outside. Um, we've got a little aviary with some African greys. I've got a tortoise and some rabbits outside. 
and they don't understand or care about any of this. They just want to be fed. They want to be like scratched behind the ear. They want to spend some time with people. You know, they want to be talked to and supported. And it's like that kind of unqualified, just unconditional appreciation that, that I really love. And we have, I mean, we've got a ball python inside and a bearded dragon. So we do have some reptiles, which is great, plus the tortoise. We've got a hedgehog. Um, lots of dogs and cats. I think we have nine cats, actually. For those of you out there who um, don't know that I'm crazy about animals, and anything from a Great Dane to a miniature poodle. I mean, literally, just lots and lots of animals. But that's also why we wanted to move to the country. We're on 30-something acres of literally woods with a little bit of pasture and a driveway. So everybody can be outside or inside. And it's like... Um, well, it's spending time with my family and taking care of the animals. That's my kind of away from all of this. I work Monday through Friday, normal business hours. This is all on. In the evening, it all gets powered down, and it's animal family time. Same thing with weekends. And loving one helps me come back and love the other even more. Thanks for hanging out with us on the Sound Iron Podcast. Please subscribe here for more interviews like this. And we'll talk to you soon.